Hey, hi, welcome to Praise Dionysus. Praise him! Uh, hey, it is Jake, it is just Jake, it is just me for this episode. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> um, because James, of course, uh, he met the same fate as Sebastian in Suddenly Last Summer. Uh, it is currently the Rising Festival. The Rising Festival is currently happening. In this episode, I'll be talking with you about two of the shows in the Rising Festival. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to see more than two of them because I'm not a millionaire. Uh, so yeah, I'll be talking about OG. Dear by Aphids. It is important to know that there is an exclamation mark at the end of the title there. Uh, <laughs> I just think it's important. They, they did not suggest that it was. Um, and the second show I'll be discussing is This by David Woods and Collaborators. Uh, yeah, speak to you in just a second. Hey, hi, thank you so much for being here. That's very, very sweet of you. I hope your day is going well. Um, and I hope that you're that you're warm and happy. I I will, yeah, I'll, I'll quickly get through uh, <laughs> a very brief analysis of my uninteresting last couple of days so we can get to the theatre. Um, uh, yeah, so I had a birthday. Uh, I, I'm not going to bore you with my opinion of my own birthday. I find any time that someone tells me about their relationship with their birthday and the celebration of it, it always, and maybe this is my mind being simplistic, but it seems to either fall into a, it's either tragic or it's, or it's a cliche or it's embarrassing for them. I, and I, I think that's on me in my mindset regarding that thing. And maybe it's culture's fault. Maybe I can blame culture for this one. I don't know. It, it brought about my need to, you know, it's one of those things that you kind of annually have to reflect upon. This year, I think I made the decision that like, I, I kind of wish that with birthdays, it was a bit more like, I'd say maybe like a touch more spooky and a bunch more subtle. I think it's almost like, you know how when like a, like a, I don't know, like an online newspaper or like a podcast or something is running out of content for like, you know, pop culture things of the week. And they're like, oh, did you know that last Thursday was like National Tapestry Day? I, I, I think I wish that maybe birthdays were treated a bit more like that in that like, if tapestries mean nothing to you, then you do nothing of note that day. Nothing you do has anything to do with tapestries. But if you're really into tapestries, then you can like, I don't know, you, you hang your tapestries on the window and you tell neighbors to look at them. Um, and maybe you like light some candles and, and wish tapestry makers well. Like, I think I wish that they, yeah, that they were a bit more like subtlety and maybe a bit of like reli religiosity. Is that, is that the term I'm hunting for? But maybe like a bit more, I don't know, sacrament and like ritual to it. Maybe, yeah, a bit more understatedness. Like it's your birthday and then you wake up and then maybe you've already got like three text messages from people who were like, oh, me and my family like lit this candle for you. Um, and then it's like a cute photo of their family all gathered around sending you well wishes for your day of birth. Um, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's my <laughs> dreary take on birthdays. Uh, yeah. And otherwise, uh, sort of like on the flip side of that, in terms of enthusiasm, I <laughs> apparently will be doing a show in this year's upcoming Fringe Festival, which has got me really excited. I, it was the classic thing of like applying for some places and opportunities and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, someone upstairs was like, oh, we missed this one. And then I, I like slipped through the cracks and I'm now going to be doing a show in the Fringe Festival. And I'm really, really excited about it. I, yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm super jazzed. I'm excited to develop what the piece is going to be. And, and yeah, I'm excited to like, yeah, build a, build a storytelling family around some ideas. It's, it's really cool. I'm excited. Um, 
so yeah, anyway, I I suppose I'm going to give, I, I I will give the, this past couple of weeks a rating out of five stars, and that rating is going to be 94, uh, 94 stars, because that's how many years old I turned. Um, uh, and okay, let's, let's talk about some rising festival shows. Um, oh yeah. And just flagging as well with the second one with this, um, there's also, as is sort of becoming a habit now <laughs> on this podcast, there's also some, like some drama surrounding this, the show, um, by David Woods and collaborators. And, and I'll be getting into that as well after my talk of my experience of the show. So if that interests you, uh, yeah, please hang around for that because I think, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. So anyway, uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about some rising shows. Okay, so I went to see Oh Dear at the Capitol. Uh, uh, Capitol with an O instead of an uh, instead of the second A. It's near, like, it's on Swanson Street near Collins Street. It's kind of near that, like, coffee... <laughs> Is this even helpful? It's kind of near that, like, coffee stand. And I don't understand how anyone gets coffee from there. I can't imagine anything more, like, stressful and unbearable than, like, standing in a busy street publicly making a coffee order. I don't understand. Uh, anyway, so I went to the Capitol with Harry Hogan. She, my favorite lighting designer, Harry Hogan, uh, that sweet angel. She was, um, she's the, so this is a full disclosure portion. She is the lighting programmer for the show. Uh, so Odia is by Aphids. I don't know yeah, how long you've been listening for, but Aphids, if you remember, um, they were the ones that did that adaptation of My Fair Lady. It was called Class Act. Uh, yeah, so just yeah, keeping you up to date on <laughs> on their background and our shared experience of them. Um, aphids themselves, in terms of like, uh, at least in terms of like <laughs> how I sort of perceive them in my mind, they're very much like their work, my limited, limited experience with it, but even just like their social media presence and the way that they seem to function as a company. They've got like a real kind of like cool, um, almost like, I'd say nearly like a metallic sheen to everything that they create, um, which is like a unique thing I, I, in my mind to, to sort of like see in like, in, in like a funky independent, like theater making company. Like, I think that's a, <laughs> the, the way that they seem kind of like aerodynamic and like vaguely corporate, I think is, yeah, just like cool, unique elements that kind of sets them apart in my mind. That's how I would kind of like characterize my <laughs> comprehension of them as a, as a creature in the theatrical wilderness. Uh, oh, and also one of my favorite people in the world, Anna Nelpentitis, is the executive producer of the company. So I guess <laughs> if we're putting all our cards on the table too, I will throw that one down as well. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, let's get started. So <laughs> I, I went because Harry invited me. She plus one me in, uh, which also meant that we went to like the, the, the pre-show, like canapé section and the post-show additional canapé and wine section of the, of the experience. Um, which of course was, I was very grateful for it, but of course felt <laughs> very like, I don't know, uninteresting and, uh, poor. <laughs> That's just how I'm going to feel when I'm in any of those predicaments and very like socially incapable. That's that. I'm just going to flag that. If you see me near canapes, I'm likely having a small panic attack. Hey, <laughs> anyway. So yeah, then we went in and we sat down, uh, and, and we watched Oh Dear. And all I knew going in uh, was that it was like the premise of it, and I guess this is me also telling you the premise, uh, is that it's like a collection of people drawing on their shared experiences. Like th this is how like the work was formulated is my understanding. They, th these, this collection of performers was collected partly due to the fact of them all sharing the fact of them having lost at least one of their parents. 
And then in the show, they are kind of additionally assigned a character from fiction that has also lost one or more of their parents. And uh, yeah, and then sort of through the course of it, kind of, so this show almost like kind of like, first off, the capital is so beautiful. I've never been inside before. And it has that like fancy, like Melbourne Symphony Orchestra style, like wall junk happening where where it's almost like, I don't know, like if barnacles got really rich and then <laughs> sort of arranged themselves on the walls of a performance venue to help with sound. Uh, it has that sort of stuff going on and the stage itself, which I think, because I believe it doubles as a cinema. So the stage itself is like so grand and so large and like, I don't know, opulent and spacious. So if that's, yeah, if it helps you picture it, that's just imagine like high fancy roofs and a, like a, a big beautiful stage which was like largely empty for the most part which I always find really exciting partly because it gets I don't know it means you can see more of what the venue is like <laughs> and, and it's also just like more room for people and and when it comes to theater I really love people <laughs> um before I start listing the characters that were on show I want to give you a second to just choose your favorite character from fiction that has lost at least one of their parents think orphans think quasi orphans that's kind of most of the options that you have I'll give you just a second to think pause if you need to but if you're driving don't do that just take a second scan through stories you've enjoyed which ones of them didn't have like you know Two parents. Okay, lock it in. Okay, my answer, I suppose, which is what I decided in the last 15 minutes, because <laughs> while watching the show, I was like, oh, are these, like, any of these characters in contention for my favorite? And not really. So what I've come out with, I think, is, like, the Amanda Seyfried character in Mamma Mia 2, um, because Mamma Mia 1 doesn't count, because even though she's, like, kind of, like, officially fatherless, she also has three of them. But then, then in, like, the second Mamma Mia, she no longer has Meryl Streep. So she has three fathers, but she's lost her mother. <laughs> her most substantial caregiver. So that is my convoluted, rather gay answer. In terms of the characters that were on show in Oh Dear! Exclamation mark, were Bambi, we have Pippi Longstocking, we have Paddington the Bear, <laughs> whose backstory I know nothing of. All I know is that I think he sometimes wears a raincoat. <laughs> Annie, the most irritating orphan of all time, I would say. I'm, I'm yet to see. <laughs> I'd say the depiction in this show was the most bearable version of Annie I've ever seen. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, um, Simba, Rapunzel, uh, whose parentage I also knew nothing of. She's more of a hairstyle to me. Dumbo, Belle from Beauty and the Beast, um, who, I got, I, as was mentioned in the show and in the <laughs> very, I think you could win the debate in terms of like how necessary the live action remake was. Uh, we learned that she died from the Black Plague. I'd say in the, in the, in the Disney remake, I, <laughs> adding nothing to the plot is, is my take on that, I suppose. I don't think anyone was like, oh, now that explains the talking clock. <laughs> uh, so uh, James Bond, in whom I have no interest, he seems very boring to me, despite, you know, his hijinks. Uh, Batman, whose voice I think is very funny. <laughs> uh, Frodo, you know, that little dwarf man. Um, Elsa, that cold lady. Nemo, the, the doofy fish. And Dorothy Gale um, from, from The Wizard of Oz makes a brief appearance as well. Um, I've likely, I've likely missed some, but that's, that's, that's what I could recall upon like shuffling into the cold outside of the theater once it was done. Uh, yeah. So let's start talking about it. So they start, they start off sitting in like an Alcoholics Anonymous circle, kind of talking about, uh, the, the fact of them all being together. And this was, this is of course where Jake drops his first ball in terms of like comprehending what's happening. Uh, so there's clearly some, a dynamic at play where it's like, okay, they've all gathered together and they are literally as performers 
in the space <laughs> of the Capitol Theatre. I forget that that's what the theatre is called. So when someone says like, okay, we're all here at the Capitol, I hear that as like, it's, it's almost the same as them having said like, okay, we are now at the Citadel. Okay, we are now like at the big city in the Hunger Games. I'm thinking like, what <laughs> weird teen dystopia are we in? And it wasn't, it wasn't until I spoke to Harry afterwards where I was like, yeah, I like, I think I understood the entire premise and how the show functioned, but like, why were they in that like fantasy town at the start? I didn't understand the relevance of that. And then she reminded me that that was the name of the venue. And then I cried because I'm a goddamn fool. But yeah, they're sitting around in a circle talking about the fact of them being both performers who have lost a parent and playing characters who have lost a parent. They kind of like sort of go around the circle uh, and, and talk about the significance that sort of connects the character that they've been assigned uh, to the experience that they've had of their orphanation, which, which is a, a cold term for what they've gone through. <laughs> Uh, so, so even with my, my idiotically, like, feeble grasp on the concept, just in terms of, like, that they are sitting around making a piece of theatre kind of in front of us uh, and kind of just exploring as if it's kind of like them formulating the show a little bit because Lara Toms, the director of the show, exists in the piece as kind of like a, almost like a Wizard of Ozzy voiceover instructing them what to do and how to behave and what exercises to undertake on stage uh, throughout with like Solomon Thomas operating a camera on stage that is intended to kind of give Lara a better view of what's going on on stage uh, from her perspective at what feels like the back of the theater while it's while it's going on which is cool which is cool that with the yeah I, I enjoyed that that sense of kind of like the director being this overwatching figure um, as, the, as the piece yeah developed um, partly because it, it sort of like allowed there to be kind of like an even playing field in terms of like the, the peer relationship of the performers on stage overseen by someone more powerful, but without that physical presence being there, for some reason, um, me imaginarily comparing the two was something. Uh, yeah, and and so in terms of like the way it functioned, like it was relatively simple in terms of its, yeah, like um, it was very much like everyone kind of taking turns in outlining their character, getting us a little bit familiar with the text from which the character like emerged. And, and then telling us very, almost, I would say very, very like, sparing little like snippets of their experience with the grief that they experienced when they lost the parent that they lost or the parents that they lost um, and how that came about and how they're currently feeling about it or how they were feeling about it at the time. It felt, the show itself felt very devised and I am the sort of person to use that adjective <laughs> in like an underhandedly kind of like <laughs> judgy way, but that's that's certainly not the case here, of course, partly because I'm not here to, <laughs> uh, to criticize like that. Of course, um, I, I'm open to whatever you're doing, but yeah, it felt devised in the, in the, in the way that, um, I don't know, you sweet listener, how much devising work you've done, but I find a lot of a lot of like the processes that I've entered into into with devising. Oftentimes, there's it feels like there's this system in play where it's like, okay, today we're exploring this, okay, and then tomorrow we're exploring this, and on this day coming up, we will choose the things that we like the little things that we came up with throughout the last two weeks working together, and we'll kind of like maybe just like put them in a row and see if that turns into an, like a dynamic, like a dynamic, interesting piece of theater. Um, and I suppose elements of what the show was in front of me felt a little bit like maybe, maybe, I don't know, it, it felt like a shadow of that type of process. And that's probably me projecting a lot onto it and me very much just guessing at the systems at play. But that's to kind of give you an idea of like how it felt. It felt a little bit like that 
to me, like that somewhat recognisable scrapbooky energy of a piece of devised theatre, which is neither positive nor negative. I'm just trying to give you an idea of, yeah, it's it's quilty nature like that, uh, which was which was fun and a good way to kind of give everyone on stage this like really like <laughs> diverse and somehow what felt like a very eclectic mix of people, like something that I was really grateful for watching it was how different everyone seemed and part of the strength of like having like a like a, a somewhat like a powerful larger company like aphids and having something like the rising festival it seems like it enables them to use this opportunity to throw like a much wider net than than a smaller company or someone on a smaller platform may be able to in terms of like scooping up a bunch of uh, people that wouldn't be in a show together otherwise which i think is always just so miraculous uh, i just yeah so I'll, I'll just point out a couple of people who i thought was kind of who i thought were remarkable first off in terms of that like big scoopy net, I was so grateful to get to see Tony Yap and Robert Draffin on stage. I have heard so many wonderful things about them. I have briefly met, briefly met Robert Draffin before, um, and but I, but I've spoken to so many people that have like learned. Same with Tony, I've spoken to so many people that have learned off them, um, and a couple of like close pals of mine have been like really changed by having worked with these two incredible artists. So I was so grateful to get to see them at all and to get to see them both on stage at the Capitol in the same show as each other was just yeah a thing that I'm yeah gonna be forever grateful for really <laughs> because yeah yeah they're such like I don't know juggernauts to so many people that I know and care about um uh, oh, it's occurring to me that I did not make it clear that the stuff that Solomon was filming on stage uh, is also being shown on a large screen at the top of the stage. That's a thing that I think is important for you to understand so that we're also seeing the footage um, on Sol Solomon's camera at the same time as it's being filmed. That's live feed, everybody, and I have mixed feelings about live feed, but it worked <laughs> really well in this show. Uh, okay, and I, yeah, so I'm also <laughs> going to continue my list of <laughs> wonderful people <laughs> that were on stage. I'm Hallie Shalom, with whom I... Yeah, I was in a show that she was like the auteur of. She was like helping us during my undergrad. She uh, was the lead artist, like director, auteur person that was helping us put together this work with me and a bunch of my like peer group. Um, and yeah, to, to put even just like the show aside, uh, which is a thing that I'm, yeah, <laughs> you know, of course, proud of, whatever. But like even to put that aside and just like when uh, when watching this show and any time that I see her or, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm, I always end up just like reflecting on how like, nurturing and wonderful that process was and and anytime I go about constructing a show I often comes come back to things that she said or or ways that she behaved in that rehearsal room um when when dealing with my own feelings and my own thoughts and uh and the the people around me so again yeah not to just keep being all like warm about this stuff but yeah, it was, I was, I just, yeah, really, really appreciated getting to see like her on stage and, and to see, you know, when you, <laughs> well, I don't know, when you feel like you get, as you kind of do, I think when developing a work with somebody, you kind of get this, I don't know, this understanding or this perceived understanding of like the, the backstage parts of what makes them so marvelous once they do actually get to start spreading their wings and showing other people what it is I don't know like it almost feels like I don't know why I'm thinking about this play just now but like that, that okay play called Red <laughs> about um that like famous artist man who painted a bunch of like red things um and I feel like it's Rothko I <laughs> correct me if you want I can't hear you I wish I could <laughs> but 
but with that play being so much just like him and his like artist apprentice and him being like, oh, red is this. And also red can also be this and watch me paint a bunch of red. And why didn't we close the play by having a red spotlight on my face? That's genius. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, that seems familiar. I don't know. Similar to my experience with Hallie Shalom in the way of like, it's so wonderful to have spent what was for me a really like formative wonderful experience making a show with her during my undergrad like degree and then it being this long until I got to see her on stage and I don't know it was it was fun and a, and a rare opportunity to be like have so much respect for a person to kind of like artistically adore a person so much and then get to see them on stage doing the thing that you spent so much time formulating and understanding of I don't know if that's a thing that you relate to I hope you do because it was like a, it was a thing that I really appreciated while watching oh dear exclamation mark uh continuing my list <laughs> uh josh glance uh who uh, a beloved stand-up comedian and artist person who i've never seen do anything before but uh yeah i've heard such wonderful things about and i because i expect to very soon get to see him doing comedy again soon and i assume it will like will be wonderful based on things that people have told me about him but I'm grateful for this being my first experience of him, partly just because I feel like it's a weird way to get to see him for the first time. <laughs> I don't know. And it was really obvious in the way that he like told the story of um, his father's passing and his like his family's like this very brief moment that we get to do with like a television. Um, it was it was really evident in that moment of Josh's trepe- like, tremendous capacity for storytelling um, and. Yeah, I, I don't know. And yeah, that, that of the moments and the memories that get like showcased in this show, I'd say that was maybe like the strongest of them that, that yeah, hit me the hardest. And I'd say that's largely due to his tremendous capacity for storytelling, which, which is of course like, you know, <laughs> due to the muscularity that exists inside of him because of his comedic skills. Um, yeah, anyway, and Rosalind Orlando, I've definitely seen her do something before because her presence is so... Ah, remarkable, and uh, yeah, and I've just it, since seeing the show, I've been trying to be like, when did I see your face? But I, I don't know. But she has this like very like wise grace about her, and yeah, and she was playing James Bond, and it's certainly my favorite depiction of James Bond. Uh, and yep, just a thing that I was grateful to get to see. And Elena Gomez, I just thought that she had a very like unique comic sensibility, and any time that her face was filling up that live stream screen. I was just like, this woman's really, really talented and really funny. And I just, yeah, enjoyed <laughs> watching and listening to to her. I, I, in terms of like visual moments that stuck with me, I would say that like, ugh, I'd say, <laughs> I'm just going to give you one. I'm going to say that when Rapunzel came out and walks from upstage to downstage in a diagonal line and trailing behind her is this like long Rapunzel hair. <laughs> I just want to say that in itself, of course, it was just like wildly stunning. I really liked that she was a brunette and I really liked the detail that was paid in terms of like her long ponytail. It wasn't just like a ponytail, but it was also like from the ponytail. There were these like offshoot little ponytails. And I just thought that was a really, really beautiful touch that I, for some reason now feel the need to bring up to you just so you can picture it with me while I remember it. And maybe we can fuse those things and share this memory falsely together. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, me being a person who has lost a parent, it, <laughs> it certainly was like, I really appreciated like the, 
the the necessary like vulnerability i said what <laughs> now i'm just thinking <laughs> to participate in a work like this do you have to be necessarily vulnerable i wonder i guess maybe the the the, the, the actors the performers themselves could answer that question i suppose you could absolutely walk into this process and this process that i fully imagined of aphids <laughs> to walk into this project at least and decide not to be vulnerable at all i guess that's a choice that you could make but but yeah no it seemed like while while everyone on stage certainly seemed to be uh, very like safe and it seems like a thing that was like uh, me coming into it knowing the premise knowing that it was going to potentially be quite grueling for me uh in terms of like like an empathic exercise and also just like you know <laughs> how how triggered am i going to get um yeah it seemed like everyone was really taken care of in in ways that again i'm probably largely guessing but seemed like no one's heart was in danger throughout the show which is yeah a credit to the process and the work and the and the priority placed on the, the welfare of the actors. That's cool. Um, yeah, I was, yeah, I guess part of me was grateful that I wasn't, you know, decimated by the end of it in terms of <laughs> the things that it made me reflect upon and the, the sadness that it could have, you know, caused a storm with inside of me, I'd say. Uh, yeah, but, but again, that is all to say that it's like, I think it's so... I don't know, I'm going to assume a bunch of bravery and courage <laughs> with these artists working together because that type of subject matter is like, I can, just thinking about it, it's like, it's so, like, it, it's a sacred part of you, I guess, you know, like the, the loss of a parent and that's to assume you liked them. Um, and maybe even if you didn't, it's like, where whether or not it's, <laughs> if it's primal or if it's evolutionary or if it's, if it's largely social. Uh, but yeah, we, we have some sort of connection to our parents and losing any of them is substantial. Uh, and to be willing to take that, um, cause it, it feels like one of those like few big things we get, um, to take that and your relationship with that and be willing to put it into a piece of theater is, is, I don't know, accidentally or not really brave. Uh, there should be a better adjective for it, but but I don't know. <laughs> There's not right now coming from this mouth. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I remember I, I had a conversation uh, much, <laughs> like much, much closer to my, um, the death of my mother and a friend of mine who had also lost hers suggested maybe making a show out of the grief that we both experienced from it. And at the time I was like, oh, cool. That sounds really interesting. And then I, even like walking home from that conversation, I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> that's, that's, and for reasons that I, I'm, I'll talk about you with in person, but I just don't want to <laughs> cry on this podcast again. But <laughs> um, yeah, this, this is, I hope this show really helps people and being, you know, granted the privilege of getting to hear Mish, the artistic director, talk about the intent of the work and what they were exploring, like the, the desire to help people develop a more healthy relationship with their grief especially given that the stories that we currently seeming like currently seem to be teaching them or sharing with them about as she said to paraphrase her um that it seems like in these stories that type of grief of losing a parent seems to take maybe like a fortnight and then then you just start singing um is maybe not the the most helpful way to help someone generate a healthy relationship with their grief and their sadness. Uh, so so if it accomplishes that, I I think it's a work that we should be really grateful for. Um, anyway, that's that that that's all I've got to say about oh dear. <laughs>
Okay, so I was talking to my friend the other day, <laughs> like literally, yeah, like two or three days ago. And she was like, oh my God, are you going to go see this? And I was like, what are you even talking about? And she was like, oh, it's this show in Rising. And I was like, oh, tell me about it. I, do, I don't, I, again, because of my poorness and my <laughs> confusing relationship with Rising as a festival, I, it's just not on my radar, you know? <laughs> so I was like, okay, please tell me, tell me what this is. And, and she was like, the first thing she said was like, it's the worst night out in Melbourne. And she had not seen the show, but that was based on things that she'd been told by other people. And I was like, what are you talking about? She continued to give me details about why people <laughs> had this response to this show. And <laughs> as she was talking, honestly, from the moment that she said that first sentence of it being the worst night out in Melbourne, I was like, of course I'm going. I have to go. I have to go and see it. And I have to talk to the people about it. <laughs> um, because how could you resist an invitation like that? That's just <laughs> the best thing I've ever heard. Uh, so uh, so th this is my experience of going to this. Um, uh, sorry, I just have to like, what else did she even like? Someone was like... Um, someone was like, oh, they, they were so cold the entire time. And they're like, oh, there's this part where it feels like you're like lining up for a COVID test. There's like, I, it's just so uncomfortable, <laughs> so long, um, so dull. I was like, I, this, this combination of things sounds impossible to me and I have to do this. But what, so what it meant was, <laughs> of course, the moment I got home from that conversation, I bought a ticket to it and... Like, I told my friend that I bought a ticket to the show and he was like, oh, Jake, you're going to hate it. You're going to hate it. And I was like, can I, am I, can, I, don't, I don't know, relaying to you enough how excited I was to go and see this show? It's like, so then like, because <laughs> so, I saw it last night. So last night rolls around and I spend the whole day just being so jazzed. I'm just so excited to go. Um, and to the point where it's like, okay, I truly got ready for it. Like I was going bushwalking. Like I got, <laughs> I had like a jumper on and then like another, like, <laughs> like polar fleece thing on top. And then like another jumper in my bag because of like, and a beanie <laughs> because of my, like, you know, that the, the person that said that they got really, really cold. So I was like, okay, I'm going to be ready. I had like two bottles of water in case it's really, really long and I get dehydrated. Um, I had food in my bag because I was like, look, if we're going to be in there for hours, maybe I'll get hungry and maybe I can share this food with other people while we're watching it. This is how prepared I was. And can I again <laughs> just stress how excited I was for this absurd adventure I was going on. I turn up to the former Richmond Power Station, which is not a venue that I knew existed, but it is, it's there. It's like, you know, when, if you're going... <laughs> <laughs> down Chapel Street, going towards Richmond. You go over that like pretty white bridge. It's like on the left after that happens. Uh, did not know it was there. Now I do. I do not have a firm grasp on what the fudge that building is or what it's for, because even being in it to see a piece of theater that was maybe going to ruin my life, I still have no grasp. Like the foyer itself is a very like traditional feeling, like welcoming foyer with like, with like a little, like a tiny stage for, Press, like, I don't know, press conferences and then like a, like a tall staircase at the top of which there was this like small, like the three person chamber band playing orchestral music. That's to give you an idea of what I walk into. So I go in, there's a cloakroom and it's like <laughs> ignoring that because I have to keep my supplies on me in case I have to help, <laughs> you know, feed the audience to get us through this. And I see my friend Casey, she's working as an usher. And that was a very like beautiful sight to see because it's been so long since we got to have like a long conversation. So I went and sort of like <laughs> burdened her with my presence and we talked about a bunch of things. Uh, did you know that there's like an awards night for community theater? I did not know this and I need to get a ticket to it. <laughs> so if you have any connections, please, 
please get me there. Uh, that's just one of the many things that I learned from Casey. She was recently in a production of The Revlon Girl. Did you know that there was a disaster in the UK where a like a bunch of garbage slid down a hill and killed a bunch of kindergartners? Now you do. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's what that plays about. Anyway, so standing with Casey and just watching like the hubbub, the, I don't know. It was like, okay, so people start coming in and it feels very much like the show is about to begin around us. Um, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know what, what even shifted in the air. It was like the start time had kind of passed and it was like, the energy surrounding like because the moment that I was told that this was the worst night out in Melbourne, I was like, okay, Jake, you have to go to this show, but you also have to do zero research. Okay, you need to go in as blind as possible. But of course, I felt it was certainly going to be experimental and strange uh, <laughs> because you could. I feel like some you almost have to be experimental and strange in order to elicit that type of response from people. That of like this art needs to be stopped. <laughs> uh, yeah. So standing in the foyer, people start milling. The, the, the fact of even just like that, like three person orchestra band playing up the staircase, feeling like a, a weird thing of like, okay, let's co like convince people they're at a fancy place. Uh, but we're at the, like the, the old Richmond power station, wherever we were, it's like, okay, something's going on. And it was, yeah, exciting to be in that headspace of like, okay, suspect everything. <laughs> and then, then, so the first thing to happen is, well, first off, there's, there's this like very conspicuous argument that happens between what, what seems to be like a waiter and like the manager of the waiters is my understanding. So I'm going to be giving you so much detail. I will try to get through it quickly, but I just want to, because I feel like the show at time of recording this is like about to close. And I don't know if this show is even able to happen again, just because of like the scale uh, <laughs> and how odd it is. Like I, yeah, so I, I, if you don't want to have this show ruined for you, uh, yeah, don't listen, but I'm, I'm going to give you at least all the details that I think are worth telling you about. <laughs> okay. So standing there with Casey and then our focus gets pulled from talking about community theater, one of my favorite topics <laughs> and gets pulled towards this waiter having a fight with, with what seems like the manager of the waiters. And I sort of give Casey this like knowing glance of like, oh, <laughs> has the show begun? And she of course gave nothing away because she is a professional. Uh, and so there's that kerfuffle. Uh, later on, there's, <laughs> that fight happens and then it sort of dies down. And then we go back to sort of just milling around. Then like a loud, what seems like an upper middle class, somewhat tipsy woman walks in the front door and we kind of witness her slurrily, angrily kind of go to the bathroom behind us, like the venue, not the the bodily function. Um, so yeah, so just understand that there is already the kind of this spirit of like stuff's going on that isn't just the stuff that is tr like strictly speaking, the, the, the onstage things. So just, <laughs> that's an element to bear in mind. Then what happens is like it begins and what feels like happens, well, what happens is on this little stage that is in the foyer with us, uh, <laughs> there's a podium. And this woman comes out and begins talking about the fact of this piece of art happening. This kind of like non-specific piece of art. It feels a lot like when you're at like a major theater company's like season launch or something. And someone in a nice outfit is standing at the podium being like, thank you so much for being here. Um, doing a welcome to country. Uh, and and yeah, welcoming us to whatever this thing is and making very clear that we are all just like expected to be, we, we should all understand that it is significant. We should be like, feel somewhat privileged to get to be here for it. Uh, and, and that introduction kind of like goes for a little while. Then there's a little performance of this, <laughs> which begins kind of like the pattern of like what I, I would say is kind of like the first chunk of the show being what felt like kind of like a satirization and 
uh, like a rather pointed <laughs> kind of skewering of this experience of like corporatized artistic presentation, I suppose, of being in one of those foyers at one of these theaters with a lot of money. And that's, you hear all these voices that are kind of responsible for the commodification of the arts and the arts, even with like a lowercase a almost. Uh, and, and so we watch this first woman do that even just in the way of like, she has kind of this very like narcissistic and almost like deludedly self-important take on the welcome to country, which I think is always like a very brave <laughs> and I'm not, not saying brave in the way of like, everyone should do it, but brave in the way of like, that is obviously such like a sacred political controversial thing to even feel comfortable kind of like tinkering with in terms of like, you're going to make a statement about that. That's very like bold of you. So that occurs. Uh, she then introduces this. <laughs> and I don't know how much this like is recognizable to you, but it's like, how often are you in like one of these types of places? And sometimes it's a place where this type of thing is appropriate, but in these types of places where it's like, okay, we're all like sipping free champagne and wearing blazers. And then suddenly there's this out of nowhere kind of like hypersexual burlesque thing that happens. And for me, it's happened at, at like nightclub venues, it's happened during shows where it's like out of nowhere, everything kind of grinds to a halt. And then we're suddenly watching some hypersexual like, burlesque dance routine to like a song from RuPaul's Drag Race and kind of no one's in the right mindset to properly engage with it, but it's super happening. Uh, <laughs> and that tension was, yeah, showcased for a little while during this like very sexual, like cow themed burlesque striptease thing that happened. And I, I was grateful that it felt like someone was finally pointing at that and being like, isn't it odd that this happens so often? And okay, so additional important detail. So we are all still standing at this point. Uh, while <laughs> this is all happening, waiters are like coming through at like, sensible intervals, like the intervals at which a waiter would typically come through, waiters like snaking through, slightly bumping into everybody that they're passing. And first off, I love this touch because me as a like <laughs> now a long time hospitality worker, I enjoy any time that we, <laughs> I don't know, acknowledged in art because we are this fungus that is present at all of these things and not enough people think about it, <laughs> I think. <laughs> uh, and the way that that almost <laughs> not just added and like beefed out the world that we were in, uh, but <laughs> it almost felt a bit Brechtian in the way of like, they were kind of this reminder to like, to kind of like wake up a bit and be like, but also remember you're watching a show about this. Like this isn't just like us replicating this, this four year experience or this presentation experience. It's also a thing of like, uh, but don't get too comfortable because getting bumped that often by someone carrying a tray, wearing a vest is not a comfortable experience, but it's almost like, don't get settled. Like it did feel like oh, almost the moment where I felt like, oh, I can like, now I can feel like an invisible audience member. That's when that waiter would come up and bump me again and be like, oh fuck, okay, no, <laughs> this is, this is theater and it's irritating me. Uh, and, and it also meant as well, like, cause I've, not to talk about me for a second, I promise I'll make it fast, but I worked with this artist named Adele Varco, whose work I, I'm really into. And one of the pieces that we did was going to this art, uh, we went to the substation, um, was where, where this version of the work happened. And it was about eye contact and she recruited a bunch of us to be people that would be in this art exhibit for somebody else's that a number of other artists work, but her contribution to the gallery was to have us as like roaming 
pretend civilians that would <laughs> engage in different levels of eye contact with strangers. And it was this like <laughs> secret, almost like guerrilla art piece that was happening that was meant to kind of like subconsciously and unconsciously affect their experience at the gallery. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I'm just sort of like into that type of thing anyway. But it also meant that like, <laughs> sorry, that aside, that ignore that anecdote if you want to. But this presence of like these <laughs> somewhat Brechtian bumpy waiters definitely was like the beginnings of me being like, okay, trust nobody. <laughs> Everyone, like anyone could be in on this. Jake, keep your eyes open. But it also meant that of course, me being like a paranoid idiot, it was also like, okay, but who? <laughs> I need to work out who, because I think I'm pretty good <laughs> at uh, very few things. One of them being, I think I'm pretty good at finding people that are performing normalcy. But like, that's an especially difficult thing to do. And just sidebar, I think that comes from either like neurodivergency or homosexuality, but we'll get into that on a on another episode. <laughs> but, but it was like, it was an especially difficult thing to do in a sea of what did feel like very artsy Melbourne people, you know? Um, because as, as the rest of this like first portion of the show began to unfold and it being this kind of skewering of like theater elitism, I suppose, or, or at least this encapsulation of it, um, it became very caricature because then, especially when like, like it's a, some sort of minister comes out, like, you know, like a somewhat handsome man in a suit that that very familiar trope that happens at these types of things uh, comes out and then tries to relate to like the poor people that he's trying to elicit applause from that type of thing. So that character comes out and does, does his bit for a little while. <laughs> and, and yeah, very effectively, it's very much, yeah, that the, the <laughs> trying to speak in art speak, but also, I don't know, but being unable to do it very convincingly, like, I don't know, like almost like a, like a dad doing a rap for his kids, that, that type of thing. So <laughs> that's also happening. So especially when you start factoring in like, okay, so we're kind of talking in caricatures at this point. Uh, so then I then started sort of like looking around this audience around me of like, okay, where are the caricatures? And then I come back to, we are in a soup of like <laughs> Melbourne artsy rising festival attendees. It's like, there's a lot of just caricatures that go to these things. Um, but I did pick a couple of them. Uh, one was this sort of older woman in thick rimmed glasses who I was like, I'm on to you. If you start behaving strangely, I, I know. <laughs> uh, there was also like a, like a short Italian looking lady who was doing a lot of like, risen nose like facial movements around the place like she was like looking around almost like she was like a submarine's periscope it might have just been because she was curious and short or because she wanted to seem like she had like an air of pomposity that would later like you know pay off <laughs> and there was another man this like young handsome guy in like a brown jacket who <laughs> was just his presence was a little bit too conspicuous for me as a person that was just a person he didn't seem enough like a regular person but again maybe it was due to their handsomeness maybe it was due to the brown jacket that i quite liked um, i don't know <laughs> but at that point everyone was a suspect they were my top three this presentation continues. An award is presented to the sexy cow dancer. They refuse it because they don't necessarily see the merit of being awarded something that was something like a community contribution to the arts or something. It was like, now we're talking about like, what do awards mean? Which is of course a conversation I'm always open to having. So that was exciting. Uh, <laughs> there's a fist fight. <laughs> um, a gentleman of color comes on stage and there is what feels like almost like a, like a class motivated friction between he and the political man that was on stage moments ago. Um, 
and uh, yeah, which I was foggy on because I didn't get all of the words of it, but it seemed like that was the spirit of it. And then <laughs> the politician man falls through the floor of the like little stage that they're on, um, which kind of instigates a larger hullabaloo. A tradie comes out to try to fix the stage. Uh, and then <laughs> that's kind of what happens in that space. Then what happens is a bunch of what looks like <laughs> either dust or asbestos starts falling from like a vent in the roof above us. Uh, and then there's like a few like sparks and flames that go off around us as well. And then the tone of course shifts and it's like, okay, something terrible's happening. Like there's some sort of emergency everyone file in this direction. We go upstairs. Um, we are being directed by these people in these like big sort of like hazmat suits and like goggles. And I'm spending too much time trying to like look into their eyes to see like what type of character they're playing. Cause I'm an idiot. And then we keep walking upstairs. Uh, and then we get into this like big long room that is just like two rows sort of like you know when you get married, <laughs> um, which I hope for all of you, uh, it is the only ticket to happiness. When you get married and you walk down the aisle, I could have just said aisle. You walk down the aisle of the church. Um, imagine if instead of pews, you just had individual plastic chairs facing each other. All, what I've just described is an aisle. <laughs> imagine two of them, they're quite long. So we've kind of got these two aisles flanked by those like sort of those like backyard plastic white chairs we get welcomed into that room and kind of just instructed to sit down um and told where the bathrooms are and yeah we get told to sit and i believe i i, I the, it wasn't super clear to me but it sounded like the speaker was like now we're gonna have like a 40 minute interval so like get comfortable <laughs> and i was like great you know what <laughs> i came prepared <laughs> so i pulled out my selma blair memoir i was like I had a sip of my water. I was waiting to hear if someone said they were hungry so that I could offer them my Hawaiian tear and share. I was, again, very prepared for this. So I start reading, feeling very comfortable and safe. Opposite me, like on the other side of the, the chair aisle that I'm sitting on, this group of four people are talking. And I'm still, of course, my antennas are still up in terms of like, who is real, who is not real. And the conversation they are having like opposite me, it's like, oh, it's amazing. Like, oh, like <laughs> I think that the sentence that got me the most frustrated was when they were like, oh, it's hard to know like who's a real person and who's not. And like what's real and what isn't. Like, I guess that's kind of the point. And I was like, <laughs> Is this, and it's it's rude of me to be that irritated by that type of <laughs> conversation. Um, they seem like very nice people having like a regular conversation, but I just think <laughs> I just had no patience for that type of nonsense. And then I was also like, are you all actors? <laughs> and you've been told to have an irritating conversation. <laughs> and then on the left of them, there was this like, <laughs> this beautiful older man that I kept making eye contact with. And then I had like Adele Varco flashbacks of like, okay, are you an actor? And you've been told to find some lonely person and try to convince them that they're having some sort of flirtation that isn't real. That's cruel. <laughs> that was also going on. Then on the left of me, while I'm trying to read my Selma Blair, Selma Blair memoir, but getting distracted by all of this hullabaloo around me, this couple on my left is having this conversation where she's describing this like lavish, immersive experience she had in this show that doesn't sound real. And she's like, and then I sat down on this couch and then I fell through the couch. And then when I, when I was on the other side of the couch, I was in this like underground red fiery wonderland. And I was like, have you been told to sit down next to people and describe immersive theatrical experiences that aren't real just to get them thinking about other theatrical immersions? I, <laughs> this, and oh my God. So that was my experience of that room. 
these people were walking up and down for like as part of the show explicitly and they were giving people yellow stickers and I was given one and I did not know if that meant that I was going to be getting executed. It was like, there was a point, oh, I'll, I'll get to that later. <laughs> Remind me, otherwise I won't remember to get back to it. Remember that I said that I was ready to get executed. Uh, so we're in there for what feels like not very long. Like again, factoring in, of course, what was on my mind was kind of this like whirlpool of these things that have been like said to me of like, oh, it's so long. Oh, you'll be so cold. Oh, you'll hate it. Oh, COVID testing facility. I didn't feel like we were in that room for longer than like 15 minutes. Um, and I enjoyed it because I had like my paranoia and my memoir. So uh, eventually we're told to get up and we get filed out and we go into this new space and we're sorted into either you have a sticker or you don't have a sticker, reminding you I had a sticker. So I went to the right <laughs> to again, potentially be shot in the head. I walk through, <laughs> we come out. I'm trying to be like at the front, like front of the pack because <laughs> you know, maybe part of me was like, I don't want to have to watch too many of these civilians get murdered in front of me. I'm happy to go first. And I don't even think that that's how I'd want to like behave in that situation. I don't think I'd want to be first. Anyway, <laughs> we keep walking, we're walking, we're walking. And then eventually we get to like, there's just this big seating bank. And first off, <laughs> we're no longer in a place that feels in any way theatrical. We're walking past these like, I'm not a superhero man, but it feels like we're in like a building in Gotham City. Please forget that I said that. But it, just because it felt like like an abandoned, empty, like high rise, because all of these like big windows on our right were sort of just barely covered by very old, that style, not Venetian blinds, those like ones that are almost like crink, like foily, like horizontal foily kind of <laughs> like metallic and they make that <laughs> sound when you rustle them those um and they have that long plastic tube that you can like turn and they kind of <laughs> oscillate open and close that's they're the sorts of windows that are on the right then we see the performance space that we're about to be like like faced at <laughs> for what I then assume is probably gonna be like the rest of it. Like it seems crazy to make us walk any more than we've already walked, I suppose is the mindset I've got. Um, we get told to sit down. I sit as close to the front as I can, of course. Um, and I'm seated in like the second row from the front. And I end up sitting next to the, <laughs> the older woman with the like thick rimmed glasses. And so of course I'm still like, hmm, Interesting you want to be this close to the front. Interesting that you've targeted a man here alone. <laughs> so yeah, <I'm, laughs> but some time to come, still very prepared for her to do something outlandish and for me to, you know, look at the rest of the audience and be like, ah, I saw this coming. <laughs> uh, so we sit there and so I'll describe for you what we are now looking at. So <laughs> we're in this like long seating bank that <laughs> and which is like raked, like a regular seating bank. I'm in the second row on the right. In front of us, first off above us, is this like this like rectangle of balcony, I suppose. Like it's kind of like you look up from where I am and you can see the roof. And between me and the roof, there is this like second floor where the unstickered audience members are standing watching from a balcony. Uh, just letting you know about that. <laughs> um, in front of us, there is this large dirt mound in the performance space in front of us that is being like theatrically lit. So we kind of like know that it's gonna feel a bit more like conventional theater, I suppose. This big dirt mound, on the left of that dirt mound is a big tire with a person inside of it. On the right, just behind that dirt mound is another <laughs> less significant dirt mound with four of the performers' heads sticking out of the dirt mound, sort of like Beckett style. <laughs> and then behind that, there's kind of like a big, feels almost kind of like a concrete section of underpass, just kind of like, 
<laughs> a big concrete, imagine like a big concrete square, big enough for like a person to stand on another person's head, that kind of height. And then just like take off the front face of it so you can walk into that box of concrete. And then above that, quite impressively and beautifully, above that concrete square is a balcony of an apartment and, you, and an apartment. So like <laughs> what we're seeing is like we're facing this apartment and we've got the balcony and then we've also got the like the wall that you would, if you were inside the apartment, walk onto that balcony from. And you can see into that apartment and the lives happening inside of that as well, which is really, really stunning. It's crazy. And so through, <laughs> throughout everything else that I'm about to describe that happens in the show, inside of that apartment is kind of this like, vaguely cultural party happening. Like it seems to be no specific culture that I could glean, but there's always like musical instruments happening up there, a bit of dancing, um, a bit of singing. Um, but of no specific kind of like genre, I'd say. Uh, on the right-hand side of the big major dirt mound is this like little pool of what looks like dirty, muddy water, which again, I just think is super beautiful. I also, I just really like looking at water and even just like the viscosity of the water itself, super duper into it. Uh, once everyone's kind of like seated and the people have like amassed at the balcony above us, the, <laughs> the action begins. Um, and I'm just going to hit you with some points of what happened in the action of the piece for the rest of the show, because we do spend the rest of the show in these seats, watching everything play out in this arena that we've just started watching. Now, uh, there's a part at the beginning of it where there's like this, this school girl comes out in a, like a school dress and it gets more and more, as she does, more and more like filthy and disgusting in the dirt that she's like rolling around on, on this like surprisingly bouncy dirt mound at the front of the performance space. Um, that I've at this point <laughs> referenced too many times. <laughs> um, she has a tradie dad. It's the same tradie from upstairs that was like brought in to fix the hole in the stage after the politician fell through it. He comes out, he's very aggressive with her. Uh, and uh, yeah, <laughs> um, oh my God. And like attempts to sort of like playfully drown her a number of times uh, in the dirty water. Um, and my understanding is that she does die that way, uh, which is bad news for the dirty little schoolgirl. I am of course not pro murdering your daughter. Uh, but yeah, that occurs. <laughs> uh, there's a couple of uh, homeless people. So <laughs> it's important too as well to know that they're like strung up sort of like on the balcony, almost in the division point between the balcony of the nice apartment and where it becomes the concrete square that you can again walk into underneath it there's these signs that are referring to the homelessness crisis and the privatization of like public housing uh just letting you know about that and then there are two homeless characters like homeless characters that at least get to like speak substantially one of them being someone that used to work in something financial is a thing that we come to learn about him and another one who is a woman that <laughs> i guess seems to have like at least really like made the state of her homelessness kind of like her home. I don't know if that's an ignorant thing to say, but it seems like she's been homeless for a little while and has found a way to find a place to be consistently at home in it, I suppose. I, does it just sound like I don't know what I'm talking about? It just seems like she's been homeless for a while and it's been her life for a bit. Um, yeah, and she, like the latter, like the second of the homeless seeming characters played by Amarachi Okaram, um, is the text that she's given to deliver uh, is is um, the style of it, I suppose, is almost like it feels a, a bit surreal and quite, I don't know, I guess I have a two-pronged opinion about this. And maybe because it's such a new feeling, maybe it's, a, a, I don't know, a, a, a foolish one to have. But my first thought, I guess, is 
giving like highfalutin floral language to a, a character like that, like a homeless character, um, one who kind of maybe is a bit potentially imbued with the sense of like, oh, what a, like a like a mystical, misunderstood, like from the shadows kind of person to give them a bunch of like floral poetic language to deliver. I, I, I guess I'm trying to like wrestle with like how sensibilities in my mind calculate like <laughs> that, not the ethics of, but the, the things at play when it comes to taking this homeless character and giving them a bunch of like floral poetry to deliver, I guess maybe feels a bit like it's almost like saying that homeless people are these confusing exotic creatures that exist on the periphery of like regular living. And then in this effort to portray them on stage, we continue to <laughs> insist that that, like if they were given the chance to speak, that's what would come out of them. This language that exists outside of our own, only just, <laughs> and the things they have to say are almost of like a dense, <laughs> unfamiliar tongue. I don't know. That's that's something. I don't, um, I don't know. That's. It, I, I think it's obvious that this is like the beginnings of my comprehension of these things. But <laughs> but I wanted to talk about this as quickly as possible. And so that's that's where I'm at with that thought process. Um, I'm super keen to hear if you re really disagree with me, um, or if you have a more eloquent way of putting what I was getting at trying to comprehend. That was something. And I guess to <laughs> the flip side as well with Amarachi's text and what she, she was like given to say, <laughs> I guess <laughs> I have this other thing and it's sort of like is similar to this opinion that I have about like people that write tell-all books about like, especially all those people that like came out of the Trump White House and then started publishing these books that were like, quick, someone stop him. Like, oh my God, he's doing all of this stuff. And it's like, you, you chose to write a book about these urgent things you had to tell us. It's like, that's one of the slowest ways you could have done that. With giving this homeless character all this stuff to say that connects to the very urgent theme of the housing crisis and the things that are currently going on with the homeless in Australia, um, which is, in my understanding, like the bulk of what... Uh, her text was about and and this portion of the show was directly speaking to to give her such urgent subject matter <laughs> that there are so many very like valid like exciting important things to quite succinctly to deliver to instead relay them in floral poetry feels I don't know, counterintuitive. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I guess at the same time, they did have the protest signs up. Maybe it would be double percussive to have <laughs> them and to have somebody just be like, this is an issue. This is an issue. These are the issues we should fix. Um, but somehow it felt, yet. Yeah, why, why if, if you've got these important things to say, why would you in any way make them like harder for us to grasp? Um, I don't know. That's something? I don't know. Um, Kareth Manderson Galvin emerges from the large tire that was off to the left. Um, they are chained up, uh, playing what seems like the romantic partner of the tradie, who throughout the piece is painted very villainously. Um, a statement about men, perhaps? Who's to say? A statement about tradespeople. Less likely, but it's possible. <laughs> uh, yeah, she comes out and, uh, she gets taped to a baby for a while? Um, which I was into. Of course, it's dark and scary, um, but I <laughs> I don't know, it, it felt like it was like 
echoes of some of what I like enjoy about Sierra Kane's work. It was also just like a confronting image. Of course, no real babies were in danger. So it's like, I wasn't worried in that way. Uh, but yeah, to, to, to see something that sort of like, yeah, that image itself was quite striking. And yeah, for that reason alone, I was grateful to like, to see it. Um, a lot of what, <laughs> a lot of what she had to say, especially, sorry, what, 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 uh, what Kareth had to say as this character, uh, had to say was, I'd say, you know how much I hate ranking stuff, but I'd say if I had to rank styles of writing, um, I would say towards the bottom end of my favorite, like the bottom end of types of writing that I see on stage, I'd say one of my least favorite, I suppose, (laughs) is the type that feels like it has like a notes app energy to it, I guess. And I'm not trying to sound cunty. I'm just saying like, this is the reason that this the element of text didn't resonate, especially with me. Can you hear how apologetic I'm being about not, not I don't know, responding to this one element, I suppose. And I'm sorry about that, but I know that a lot of people are really into it. So I'm just alone, I don't know, probably quite alone in this feeling, but I've seen full plays written this way. Um, and and I've seen this, it was like, it just, um, a lot of what Kareth is given to say uh, during a, a stretch of their, um, performance towards the end is like just as like a series of and this is the notes happiness that I'm kind of talking about is like a series of just kind of like evocative kind of like disconnected uh just like nouns or sentences or thoughts or like fragments of bits of text and yeah and there were absolutely like beautiful turns of phrase and yeah again evocative images conjured in that list but yeah again <laughs> it's not my taste <laughs> and I promise I'm sorry for that <laughs> the homeless man that seems like he's more recently homeless goes about well because of course the politician from the (laughs) the presentation upstairs at a point falls from the ceiling onto the bouncy dirt mound uh and then which is of course a striking moment (laughs) and (laughs) uh and then yeah uh the the more recently homeless man goes about cooking him well try like starting to cook him he doesn't manage to cook him but it's it looks like he's going to become like a roast spit uh, which, as I've said before on this podcast, I'm super into cannibalism. On stage is always the end of that sentence. <laughs> Remember how I wanted you to remind me to bring up that thing that I was going to bring up? So I, there was a moment that happened where somebody stepped out onto the balcony um, and started like yelling for a bit. Um, and, and in that moment, I did have this like, probably like 12 second, I'd say probably maybe closer to like an eight second fear of like, Oh God, is this when they open fire on us? I just had, and maybe I've seen too many Purge movies. Maybe, I don't know what it is, but I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Are we, has this all just been like a ruse and now we're all about to get murdered? And I, <laughs> and I don't know what it, I, I, I don't know what it was. I think it was like something about the weirdness of the space. The fact of like, we'd gone through so many doors to sit where we were sitting. It was to do with like the subject matter being something so... Uh, like real and crucial and urgent and I don't know, and imbued with so much like by the text itself, but also by the political landscape currently um, with so much impatience and rage. Um, It's, I, I, yeah, I don't, I was just, I was just ready for us to all get gunned down, I guess. And sorry if that's a triggering, a a triggering idea for you. Um, but it was, I, I, and maybe it's also to, like to do with like the types of political theater that I've seen 
I, in in my memory, there's there seems to always come a moment where like <laughs> uh, a lot of the time, like the audience gets attacked for being there, like that that type of thing. And the idea of like going to see a show in the Rising Festival and <laughs> and paying for like the expensive ticket and going and like wearing a like a nice outfit and sitting down and then watching this dirty show about with with one of the themes, of course, being the plight of the homeless in this country. Like country, it's <laughs> it makes sense that we'd all get shot. <laughs> I don't know. So I just wanted a flag that 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 was like an interesting fear that I that I experienced for a second there, triggered by like nothing explicit. I it was I think it's just like the, all the, the those I don't know a particular combination of thoughts aligned, and I was like, oh my god, this is when it's going to happen. <laughs> and I only emerged from that fear like buoyed not largely by logic, which came second, but first was like, oh no. No, because <laughs> that that person spoke to my friend about how they didn't like the show, so we must survive. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Beyond that, there is there is a, a another fight that happens in the mud. The the four heads, um, one of which is my <laughs> my pal Vivian Nguyen, is one of the four Bakettian heads, telling jokes now and then. Um, and yeah, and it all kind of, uh, like the, the ending moments of it are, yeah, Angus Sereni playing this demonized tradie man, kind of shouting something indiscernible into the echoey abyss of the building that we're in and the dirt space that he is occupying. Um, and that's how it ends. And then we, then we were all like allowed to leave. Um, and yeah, that was, that was my experience of what was deemed the worst night in Melbourne. It wasn't for me. I, I really enjoyed it. I, um, look, if I had to come at it of like, okay, I'm trying to think of like, what's the, the worst thing about it? You know, I've been told that it was meant to be terrible. I would say, no, I'd say, as I sort of said, as I was like running through it, I'd say the text itself isn't necessarily my style. I'd say certainly, yeah, once we got down to, yeah, the, the bouncy dirt pile downstairs, the, the, the text largely stopped being the type of theatrical text that I engage with very, like, very comfortably in terms of, like, the words themselves. But, like, the themes, super fascinating and important. Um, and and even, like, the stage business that occurred, like, a bunch of heads on, a, like, a hill. That's cool. That's fun to see. Um, people physically fighting. That's always, like, interesting, even as, like, as a stagecraft thing of, like, how do they learn to do this in such, like, a dynamic, exciting way? Um, it sounds like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I feel like it sounds like I'm clasping at straws, but no, I was truly, like, I was really grateful for, like, even if I didn't go into it with my, <laughs> all my, like, bushwalking gear and all of this, like, buzz surrounding how much I was about to be so violently disappointed, I'd say no. Like, I was, like, grateful to get to see something of, like, such large scope. Like, it did feel, especially once we got downstairs, like, this feels very, like, grand and hefty and uh, I will I, I think it'll be a while before I get to see something that feels this big um, and that in itself is something to be commended and appreciated at least by me personally <laughs> um, and what else I'd say the performances across the board were quite like yeah odd and striking like everyone was like a lot of people were given some absurd things to have to like commit to doing and they yeah the competence with which they did it, like it was, yeah, there, there wasn't like a weak performance or voice across the board. I to get that got to experience so many different, even just like interpersonal experiences throughout the work, even just in terms of like audience experience, like the number of people that I got to like eavesdrop on or sit next to or be intrigued by and... And to have to be something more than like, as I've said many times on this podcast, <laughs> just let me sit in the dark. 
but yeah, to get to go from being like a person in a foyer to a person in a weird COVID-esque waiting room to a person in an audience bank inside what felt like an abandoned building. It was like, even that just on paper is, yeah, a, a cool, rare, dynamic experience as an audience member. Yeah, no, no, I certainly, I certainly didn't hate it. And there's things about it that I will continue to think about in like the months and years going forward. It spoke like directly to issues of class and like issues of class that were present in the room with us. It spoke to um, the violence against women. I, it's, it spoke to violence against children. Um, and look, like even, even as I'm saying, yeah, speaks to violence against women. It's like <laughs> speaking to it, I guess, in the sense of like, I'd say with my experience of it with, <laughs> I feel like a lot of that theme was largely present in Kareth's physical performance. I'd say because as as with like with her you know parade of poetic phrases and words and sentences that she said, um, there was stuff in there about um, the the violence inherent to the female experience. I'd say I I don't know I think with this show so much of it was about atmosphere and so much of it was about the world and in in the time that it took up and throughout the whole thing, but even just like to target the, the final portion of the show that took place around that bouncy dirt mound. So much of, I guess, what will stick with me is certainly outside of words, I'd say it's more more about like the remembering the darkness of that experience as an audience member and and seeing all the, the bodies of the people that had committed themselves to telling this story together and creating this world together. And even just the the distinction between the warm apartment upstairs and the terrifying <laughs> dirtiness of of just outside their door there was rage and terror and and grief and it and i somehow felt like it yeah it, it situated them in the landscape that <laughs> it seems to sort of i don't know almost like metaphorically belong to and i think i don't know and yeah people weren't people anymore they would they were ideas and, and consequences and, and, and yeah, what else? It, it spoke to the commodification of the arts and it spoke to the commodification of minorities. And I don't know. And I'd say almost like specifically spoke to <laughs> like the upper middle classes commodification of people of color. I... <laughs> At least it, it felt like it did. I don't know. So maybe therefore it did. <laughs> Uh, and it wasn't even that long. It was like 170 minutes um, and they packed a lot in. Um, <laughs> yeah, if we're going to get simple, I'd say if you want to boil my experience down, I'd say I super enjoyed the part where we were like in the foyer at the start. I was super into the oddness and yeah, <laughs> yeah, peculiarity of the strange waiting room we were in for that period of time. And then once we got to Dirt Town, um, as I suppose in terms of like literal like word text, um, a lot of what was present in that portion of the show didn't really hit me in a super interesting way, but there was so much image and action and atmosphere going on. Uh, that was kind of the stuff that, that stuck with me. Um, yeah. Yeah. And even just like the rigor and precision and aliveness of the performances. 
I guess. Like even like it's always so wonderful to watch Angus Serini, but I couldn't tell you a single thing he said. <laughs> but but yeah, yeah, just getting to watch him was great. And that was the case with yeah, the rest of the cast too. Um oh, and the woman next to me in the attention grabbing glasses was literally just a person that I spent the evening being suspicious of. So <laughs> but yeah, that that's my experience of that. Of this. <laughs> Indeed. So now, so now what's going to happen is I've gotten word from people that apparently there's this really atrocious review out there uh, like of this show. Um, I, and again, similarly to my experience of the show, I, I didn't want to read the review before I'd seen the show and spoken to all of you wonderful people about it. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to like <laughs> stop recording for a little bit. Um, I'm going to go read the review and then I'm going to come right back. Um, in what will feel like just a couple of seconds on your end. <laughs> and we can go through and talk about what this reviewer has apparently said. Um, uh, yeah, so yeah, stay tuned for that in like literally just a couple of seconds. I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs> okay, so I... I <laughs> oh, it's pretty rude. Okay, so I've read the review. Um, it's written by Tim Byrne for The Guardian. Um, he gave the show two stars and, you know, star ratings are super important and informative. Uh, but I... <laughs> Look, what's odd is, like, going into this review, much like I went into the show, you know, like, you know how I, I went into seeing this, expecting it to be atrocious based on word of mouth, I went into reading this review based on, yeah, word of mouth, insisting that it was quite, quite a decimation. And honestly, what's interesting is, like, a lot of the things that I was, yeah, have just been talking with you about, um the things that didn't like necessarily resonate with me or whatever. Like me and Tim kind of align on some of the things that, you know, didn't hit as hard as maybe could have for it to maybe be a slightly more satisfying evening at the theater. <laughs> um, but, but he's just very grumpy about it. Like he too dwelled on like Kareth's really fantastic opening character standing at the podium. He was, yeah, also like, into the Nikki Wilkes and Angus Serini father and daughter duo <laughs> in terms of like the energy of it, but um, like called it visceral, but also incomprehensible, um, which I essentially said while just not sounding like I was mad at them for not making a piece of art that was perfect for me. <laughs> um, I, I really don't like the way that he calls out David Woods as being the director and the lead artist and says that we can <laughs> blame him directly for everything that the show was. Just because I just don't like the idea of blaming artists for the art that they <laughs> contribute to the world. Blame is such a boring, boring word. Um, and yeah, it brings with it the expectation that the person that we're blaming should then experience some level of shame. And it's like, that's fucking insane to me. Like what? <laughs> like this piece of art, if nothing else, was like, uh, like a, a rare beast to come across and it required so much generosity from so many people and to think that someone's trying to convince someone to feel bad about what they did is a little bit reprehensible, I think, um, because if it would do anything to, to, to sour the experience of the people that contributed to something so unique, that makes me mad. And if it would make any of them less likely to try to contribute to something this large scale and strange in the future, I think that's, again, as I've said before, kind of like a sin against humanity. Um, he also highlights the fact that it, the show itself received $243,000 in government funding, which I, <laughs> look, I, I get the merit of bringing that up, that it is a really interesting fact. Uh, but, and maybe, I, I don't know, being, maybe I'm assuming too many things to, to feel this way about that remark, but <laughs> I, when you, when you bring that up, it's like, when you bring up any amount of money, because I've done a show once where we received funding from a particular, like, body of people, and then 
this <laughs> atrocious reviewer. I know it sounds like I have so much reviewer trauma inside of me, but I feel like a lot of us do. But this one particular reviewer with for whom I for whom I have no respect, and I, I hand out respect pretty generously, but this one reviewer pointed out the fact of like, I, I'd like to know what the this particular like uh, body that gave this show money would feel about this show, given that its politics might not align with, with what they've produced. And it's like, I first off, why are you entering into like a, a financial conversation and trying to instigate some sort of political debate with artists who, again, you are not attempting to establish a conversation at all. You are just being critical with not enough information to be so. But again, <laughs> Jake's trauma aside, I think when people bring up these sorts of numbers and talk about the funding that particular shows receive, I think sometimes it feels to me, and maybe this is like the dirty, hungry artist inside of me talking and not like the political activist or the journalist inside of me. Um, <laughs> but this belief that if we spent this much money on something, we are assured some level of quality. Firstly, I feel like when it comes to talking about things like theater, trying to define what quality theater is, is just, you can do it, but I find that your answer is probably going to end up being pretty limiting and very likely uninteresting, especially to an artist. And it's also the thing too of like artists aren't like plumbers, you know, it's not as if you can be like, okay, I've got this big mansion. None of the pipes work. Let's hire a bunch of plumbers to fix all the pipes. Because then after their job is done, after you pay them the $243,000, all you have to do is turn a bunch of the showers on. And if the water coming out is like <laughs> an okay temperature and the right pressure and is in fact water, you can kind of be assured they did the job right. But I don't understand what the like test is that you have in place to be like, oh, that was money well spent, you know, because what is the desired outcome? <laughs> Um, and who is determining that desired outcome? I, I just, <laughs> bringing up the amount of money that was given to this show, I just, it just feels a little bit tacky and simple-minded, I'd say. Um, and yeah, because it sort of suggests that you're <laughs> making a case for it being a waste of resources or a waste of money or something. And it's like, firstly, shut up forever. Secondly, like, what do you mean? Like, so many artists were given money for making art. Do you know how, like, how uncommon that is? In Australia, in Melbourne, like that's nuts to me. And to think that that money is in any way going to waste. Like you've <laughs> helped a bunch of artists potentially be able to like afford food or afford housing for the next like little while. And it's given them something else to put on their like CV. It's made them better artists or at least more interesting artists or at least <laughs> more experienced artists by going through this experience as well. Um, and, <laughs> and it means that they <laughs> are more likely to continue living and also making art in the future. I just, yeah, that, yeah, that that point in the in the review particularly stuck with me. Apparently, I didn't expect to be talking about it for this long. <laughs> uh, what else does he say? He calls <laughs> he calls the the show bloated and miserable. He he says that the night is long and dreary. First off, it wasn't even that long. I thought it was going to be much longer <laughs> and dreary. I think is a positive thing. <laughs> Generally speaking, not even me just trying to make some, you know, unasked for argument for this show. I think dreary's great. If I would, if I like met a person and they described me as dreary, <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind. I'm pretty enticed by the idea of wanting to like make a show that is intentionally dreary. I think dreary is kind of spooky. <laughs>
I don't know, all of this is like maybe simplistically bringing me back to like the rage that gets brought up inside me when you look at things like star ratings. Like he gave this show two stars and then he's so mad at what the show was and it's like maybe the show was exactly what they wanted it to be, you know? Like so they, they certainly haven't failed in terms of meeting their own standards of things and yeah, it didn't, didn't like resonate with you and parts of it didn't resonate with me. But why are you so angry? That's what's confusing. I don't like, if I'm going to review, like <laughs> I'll just review your review very, very briefly and quickly. I don't like that the first paragraph of it is devoted so much to describing fecal matter. I think that's gross. <laughs> no stars. <laughs> I don't know, maybe some of this just points at like the point of rising and the intent of rising. Um, I don't know, and maybe the point of like elevating and platforming like particular artworks like this in this fashion. Like maybe there's something <laughs> sort of like equally like exciting and unfair about the idea of like a festival like this that comes around and kind of like, at least based on my understanding of, of like the marketing and the intent, purports to be like, this is the best of the best. Like, come and see some mind-blowing things and you are assured an incredible, like, mind-changing evening at the theater. And I don't know, to plonk a piece of art like this in a thing like that, and for these things to feel so uncommon and to feel, I don't know, yeah, to feel all the things that I just said, to go in and expecting to be just like plonked on a conveyor belt and then by the end of that conveyor belt, you'll have experienced something world-changing. I think maybe that's an unfair way to approach art in the first place. And maybe that's that's why people get sort of like viscerally disappointed as this this guardian gentleman did. Maybe I'd say that's a decent argument for <laughs> throwing more money at the arts, you know? I, like, because the idea of like getting to be inside this like Richmond power station building, like which apparently is getting revamped soon, which is really exciting. But even just like while I was in it looking around, like looking at that gigantic space that was offered up to make art inside of, like, can you imagine that? Like, imagine if like once a month, a different company of people got the opportunity to, to like do whatever they want inside of that building and have some amount of funding that meant it was a survivable process for them. That's insane to me and <laughs> would be incredible for <laughs> so many people that would get to like encounter the art and make the art inside of there. I don't know. And if once a month you could go to a place like that and see something of this scope, and that would mean too that if you saw a show like this and you were a bit disappointed by it, at least you could come back next month and see something of a similar scale. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that review is really rude. And I'm sorry if it hurt anybody's feelings um, <laughs> because it shouldn't. That's... <sighs> I, I can't I can't walk down an avenue and start having another long conversation-y, ranty thing about, about the <laughs> state of reviewing in this country. But yeah, I think that review was just kind of impolite and unjustifiably enraged. Um, and I'm going to stop talking about it now because it's disappointing. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for being here. It's very, very yeah, kind of you to spend your time with me like this. Uh, so yeah, I hope if you're listening to this like in sort of like in real time, um, then I hope that you're experiencing the Rising Festival. I've already like I've spoken to like a bunch of people that have had really unique sort of yeah profound experiences at the theatre for this festival this year. So I hope that you become one of them. I hope something changes your life <laughs> for the better. For the better is the rest of my prayer for you. Um, anyway, yeah, again, thank you for being here. Um, speak to you really soon. Uh, and yeah, as always, I may already disagree with everything I just said and friends don't let friends become theater critics for reasons that again, um, I, we've been, I don't know, pretty <laughs> explicit about this week, uh, in this episode. Anyway, um, yeah, I'll leave you alone now. So yeah, enjoy the rest of your day.